Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. I'm excited to announce that we just launched my new book, The Fasting Transformation, a functional guide to burn fat, heal your body, and transform your life with intermittent and extended fasting. If you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that I'm a huge advocate of fasting. And in this book, I take you on a journey to help you understand how fasting helps balance your blood sugar and improve your insulin sensitivity, how it shuts down inflammation in the body, how it optimizes your hormones, turns on fat burning, and activates stem cells for deep cellular healing. Guys, I go through how fasting, I go through all the best science and research on intermittent and extended fasting and how to utilize it to help prevent or even heal from cancer, autoimmune conditions, digestive disorders, and neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Guys, the book goes over all the various research and practical applications for daily intermittent fasting, partial fasting, and extended fasting. This book is designed to help inspire and empower you to embrace a fasting lifestyle while also enjoying tasty and healthy foods at the right time to improve your metabolic flexibility and energy efficiency so you can burn fat for fuel and have all day energy. You are gonna love this book, so check it out. You can get it on amazon.com. We also have a website, drjockers.net forward slash fasting transformation. That's drjockers.net forward slash fasting transformation. You can learn more about it. And of course, you can pick the book up on Amazon. You're going to love it. Thanks so much, guys. This podcast is an audio recording of one of my most popular YouTube videos on gut dysbiosis. We know that the gut microbiome, literally they call the gut the second brain and the microbiome or the bacteria and microbes in our gut literally outnumber the cells of our body. And when these, when the bacteria, the microbes are out of balance, it causes chronic inflammation in our body. So we really need to create balance in our gut. So in this podcast, I go through what gut dysbiosis is, what causes it, what kind of symptoms you may experience if you have it, and the best natural strategies to help create balance in your gut microbiome. You guys are going to love this. And if you haven't left us a five-star review, please do that. When you leave us a review on Apple iTunes, it helps more people find our podcast so we can really influence more people and help more people optimize their health. Thanks so much for doing that, and let's go into the show. Well, hey, guys. Today, this training is on dysbiosis, 
what it is and how to heal the microbiome. So we know gut health is so important when it comes to inflammation, when it comes to really our ability to digest and absorb nutrients, our immune function, and our ability to keep inflammation under control. When inflammation is out of control, we end up with chronic degeneration, we end up with autoimmunity and a whole number of other issues. And so very important topic. And this concept of gut dysbiosis basically means an imbalance of bacteria in our gut. And this could be the loss of beneficial bacteria and also potentially harmful bacteria taking over the gut. We can also say, you know, basically that there's opportunistic microorganisms because there may also be a, an overgrowth of fungus or yeast as well as parasites, and that can also cause a state of gut dysbiosis. So we want, an, you know, an abundance of good life-giving bacteria and microorganisms in the gut. At least 70% should really be life-giving. And it's really about the right ratios too. So the right strains and the right ratios. We're never going to fully get rid of bad microbes. And in very small amounts, they're actually helpful. They actually help prime the immune system. They have various functions that can be a benefit, but they need to be kept in check. They need to be kept at the right ratio. And when we get an overgrowth of bad bacteria, parasites, and fungus, that's when we have major issues. And so some of the friendly bacteria are like your lactobacillus acidophilus, salivarius, casei, streptococcus thermophilus, all your bifidobacterium, like bifidobacterium uh, longus and uh, bifidum. These are very good bacteria that help produce short-chain fatty acids that help reduce inflammation in the body. Our pathogens are going to be things like H. pylori. Uh, so that is a pathogen that lives in the stomach and shut down stomach acid production. Um, certain Klebsiella species like Klebsiella pneumonia, Ciderobacter, Candida, uh, different amoebas like um, Blastocystis hominis, for example, protozoa, and worms as well can also all be pathogenic in the system. And so when we have rich and balanced bacterial communities, we're able to produce the right amount of regulatory T cells, which help balance our immune system, and also secretory IgA, which is an immune component that lives in the mucosa. So along the gut lining, there is mucosa that protects the gut lining, and it should normally have this immunoglobin, IgA, which helps to keep pathogens under control. It helps get rid of pathogenic bacteria and other microorganisms. And we also have IgA in all of our mucous membranes, so our sinuses, our respiratory tract. And again, it's supposed to keep pathogens under control. When we have a breakdown and a loss of IgA, we end up not being able to regulate the amount of pathogens and keep them under control. So we end up with overgrowths, more likely to get infections, whether it's respiratory infections, sinus infections, or gut infections. And then of course, when we have poor and unbalanced bacterial communities, we end up not being able to regulate the immune system. And we also end up with a higher rate of infections. So what, we, what happens? We have things like autoimmunity, allergies, metabolic disorders, frequent illness, sinus infections, um, you know, gut infections, right? So possibly developing states like, uh, like anemia, for example, when parasites start pulling iron out or 
Um, if we have bleeding in our gut or something along those lines, we can develop anemia. We can develop different nutrient imbalances and nutrient deficiencies uh, because we're not absorbing nutrients. And also sometimes unwanted microbes will actually take and steal the nutrients as well. So all of those things can be major problems. And that sets us up for chronic inflammation. And over time, chronic inflammation creates chronic disease. So when we look at a really healthy gut, it should normally have these tight junctions, which are basically, uh, you know, these, these uh, it's like knitting between, and if you have a baseball glove, you've got knitting that kind of holds the fingers in place. Well, it's kind of like that here with the gut lining. I've also heard it called like a cheesecloth where it's kind of held together by this intertwining and it's only one cell wall thick. Now, why is these, the intestinal membrane only one cell? That's because throughout the history of mankind, food has been scarce and therefore whatever we did eat, we needed to have an easy time getting it through the intestinal cells and into the bloodstream in a form where we could absorb it into our cells and provide energy for our body. So that's why it's only one cell. Now, the good thing about that is it's easier for us to absorb nutrients. The bad thing about it is that because it's only one cell, it can't handle a lot of tension and stress. And so high amounts of pathogens, undigested food particles, and overactive immune cells can create damage and damage the small intestinal cells, large intestinal cells, what we call our enterocytes, and break the tight junctions in between them. And when tight junctions are broken, now we can get immune cells, pathogens, different bacteria, yeast, parasites, as well as undigested food particles that will, will slip through the open junction between the intestinal cells and into the bloodstream where they can trigger more inflammation in the system. The body is very sensitive about abnormal proteins in the bloodstream. And that's because we know that throughout the history of mankind, systemic infections or infections that got into our bloodstream and spread into our lungs and gave us pneumonia or into our nervous system and gave us meningitis this is what would kill more people, you know, throughout the history of mankind than anything else. So it's a major threat to our survival. So the body has created this complex system of inflammation to help keep that in check. So when it notices unwanted, you know, high levels of unwanted proteins or unrecognizable proteins, it says that could be a threat to our survival. We need to turn up inflammation in the system. And so we start turning up the inflammation. The problem is if inflammation stays turned up for a while, it damages all of our systems, our blood, our, our, uh, blood vessels, as well as all our major organ systems. And depending upon your genetic risk, it's going to damage those particular organs. So if you have a genetic risk for a thyroid problem, you're going to get more inflammation around your thyroid. Over time, many years of this developing, you may develop thyroid nodules, or if it's brain, you may develop, you know, early stage dementia that, that, you know, just only continues to get worse. So, you know, very important that we keep the gut lining, gut junction intact. That way we keep inflammation down throughout our system. That's just so critical here. So a healthy microbiome, we normally have, you know, this large, thick mucous membrane. And you can see that on this image here, if you're looking at it. So the lumen is 
this mucous membrane that really helps protect the enterocytes, the intestinal cells. And in that you have your secretory IgA and in, you also have a lot of different types of bacteria, including one that's called Ackermansia mucinophilia. Now, mucinophilia means loves mucus. Ackermansia mucinophilia is called a keystone bacteria. That means that it is associated with better metabolic health and lower levels of infl inflammation. Across the board, we see normal optimal levels of Ackermansia. Those people tend to be a lot healthier as a whole. And we only see that, we only see the Ackermansia at normal healthy levels when we have an intact mucous membrane. When that mucous membrane starts to break down, we get a reduction in our mucus loving bacteria. We also get a reduction in the short chain fatty acid producing bacteria, bifidobacterium and lactobacilli. And we get an increase in these primary feeding bacteria that tend to overgrow, bacterioides, lactospiraceae, and enterococcus. Now those are all normal inhabitants. However, we get an overgrowth of those and they start basically consuming all the food and they also create inflammatory compounds such as lipopolysaccharides that drive up inflammation in the system. So again, you know, the right bacterial balance, super important for overall health, really keeps inflammation under control, helps improve insulin sensitivity, our ability to manage blood glucose levels and keeps inflammation throughout of the system. And when we have a dysbiotic gut, we end up driving up more inflammation, driving up blood glucose, insulin resistance, and also creating inflammation in other regions of the body, including possible inflammation in the brain. And over time, when there's inflammation in certain regions of the brain, like the hippocampus, they'll divide, they'll the brain, that area of the brain will start to have amyloid deposition, which is helping with basically, I mean, the amyloids are damaged proteins in there, which over time is associated with Alzheimer's disease. There's also Lewy body formation, these dysfunctional proteins, which can, can form in basal ganglia areas of the brain that can be associated with Parkinson's disease. So, you know, dysbiotic gut dramatically increases inflammation throughout the body, including the brain. Now, what are the major causes of dysbiosis? Chronic stress, food sensitivities, low stomach acid, poor bile flow, bacterial overgrowth, yeast, or parasite overgrowth. So when we look at food sensitivities, food sensitivities are delayed reactions to a food that oftentimes we don't even experience for maybe up to 72 hours after eating an offending food, whereas an allergy is something you notice immediately. You consume peanuts, and then all of a sudden you get anaphylactic shock, or your lips start swelling up, your heart starts racing. You notice it. You're like, wow, that was an immediate reaction of massive amounts of inflammation. Whereas a sensitivity, you eat the food, but you don't really notice it until maybe hours later, you feel fatigued. Uh, perhaps, you know, the next day you break out with acne or you have a, a rash on your skin or you have a headache later in the day, but it's hard to really pinpoint to the culprit, to the food culprit that caused it. And so it can lead to digestive issues like bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea, fatigue is a common issue, issues with mood like anxiety, depression, joint pain, headaches, so pain in our body, skin issues, hives, eczema. The most common sensitivities are wheat, gluten, 
uh, milk, da- milk and just dairy in general, particularly dairy proteins. Butter usually is well tolerated, but things like um, cheese, yogurt, stuff like that, where you've got the protein component of the milk, that can oftentimes be an issue with the sensitivity. Corn, eggs are, even though a, a very nutrient-dense food can oftentimes be there. A lot of people have food sensitivities. People with leaky gut can often have sensitivity to the egg albumin. Sugar is another common one. Nuts uh, can be another common one as well. Um, and in some cases, nightshade vegetables. That's going to be things like tomatoes, um, white potatoes, uh, eggplant, and okra, and stuff like that. Red peppers, right? So just peppers in general. That's in that nightshade family. About 25% of our population has a food sensitivity to nightshades, and it causes inflammation for them. So these are all things to be on the lookout for and to be aware of. Now, seven major functions of stomach acid. Stomach acid is key, and a lot of people are not producing enough stomach acid. Even though we hear about things like acid reflux and we think, wow, that's a sign the stomach's producing too much acid that it's shooting up into the esophagus. It's actually not true. It's actually too little acid, not getting enough acid. And therefore, when food goes in, it kind of sits in the stomach, doesn't move into the intestines, and it starts to ferment, and now acid starts to jump up, pushing into the esophagus and causing heartburn. So the major functions of stomach acid, number one, it sterilizes the food. When we eat food, we've got bacteria, fungus, yeast, and parasites on that food. Even if it was just freshly cooked, there's some level of microorganisms on it. Obviously, we want a low level, but there's going to be some level. And so the stomach acid's job is to sterilize it, further sterilize it to make sure that we get rid of as much of the bad stuff as possible. It also is key for breaking down protein. So we are not going to be able to digest protein effectively, break it down into amino acids. And we need amino acids to produce neurotransmitters and hormones and new cells and things like that. Well, we're not going to have good protein digestion if we don't have the right amount of stomach acid. It activates a protein called pepsin. And pepsin is really key for um, breaking down protein. It is a proteolytic enzyme. So uh, pepsin is really key there. And also stomach acid activates intrinsic factor, which is a protein that helps with the absorption of vitamin B12. A lot of people with B12 deficiencies are consuming enough B12. They're just not absorbing it because they don't have enough stomach acid. They're not activating intrinsic factor. We need, we need it to stimulate the delivery of bile and enzymes. So good amounts of acid actually open the pyloric sphincter, which is the lower sphincter uh, between the stomach and the small intestine. And they hit certain cells that uh, send a message to the liver and the gallbladder to produce bile and to help the bile flow through the bile ducts into the small intestine. That's because bile is alkaline. So in our stomach, we need a very highly acidic environment. In fact, you're at rest, your, your stomach environment is usually around 3.5 or 4 pH. Now compare that to water. Water is a neutral pH of about seven. So it's still very acidic. However, not acidic enough to really break down protein. If we need to break down protein, like we're eating a steak, we need to get that stomach acid level down to 1.5 to 2.0, somewhere in that range. So around two or less. So that's actually a significant amount of energy we need to produce to make the acid to break down the steak and to break down the protein that we're eating. 
So it's an energy demanding process. And many people, their their body is so broken down and so inflamed that they're not able to produce the energy in order to do that. And therefore, they're not able to get the good flow of stomach acid going into the small intestine, which delivers the bile and the pancreatic enzymes. So if the, st- the acid's not strong enough, we get lower levels of bile and enzyme release. And therefore, again, that's going to further compromise our ability to digest food. Bile is also very uh, antimicrobial, so it helps keep pathogens down and under control. And if we don't get a good bile release, we can end up with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth or parasites in our small intestine. So, you know, you guys can see this is so critical that we get the right delivery and the right activation of stomach acid, bile, and pancreatic enzymes. Stomach acid is also key for closing the esophageal sphincter. Now, that's the sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach. When that stays open, because we're not producing enough stomach acid, acid is able to jump up into the esophagus, causing heartburn and damaging the esophageal tissue. So we need, again, get that acid really good. Now that's going to help the stomach, the uh, esophageal sphincter close, the body be able to really uh, sterilize the food, break down the protein, absorb key minerals like zinc and iron and vitamin B12, and then once it's kind of done that process, it opens up that pyloric sphincter and allows the bolus, the, the partially digested food, to move into the small intestine for further digestion. So it's a really key process. Now, I started talking about bile. Bile is actually produced in the liver, in the bile ducts. It is stored in the gallbladder, which uh, is an available storage for bile just in case we have a larger meal. And so humans were built for this sort of feast famine cycling that I teach. And therefore, when you, you know, you normally should have large meals if you have an intact gallbladder and if you have good digestion and you're able to squeeze the bile out of the gallbladder, which needs to be done on a regular basis. And this is why people that are on low fat diets oftentimes develop gallstones because they're not squeezing the, they're not getting the contractile squeezes and pushing out more bile because they have lower levels of fat in their diet. So we need, actually need a good amount of fat to help keep the gallbladder as clean and free of gallstones as possible. Now, bile also helps improve your not only your ability to break down and emulsify, and it's kind of like soap on grease, helps emulsify and uh, break down the fatty acids so that we can digest them and use them for energy. But it also is a deposit for waste products. So as the body is recycling red blood cells, uh, in fact, bilirubin is a breakdown product of red blood cells. Bilirubin is a key component of bile. Bile is basically cholesterol, bilirubin, and uh, certain amino acids that are called bile salts. And the amino acid bile salts are key for keeping the bile, uh, having good mobility of the bile. Otherwise, it gets too sludgy and thick, right? I'll have too much cholesterol, be too sludgy and thick, and won't move very well, and it, and it can cause a lot of unwanted problems. So we need it to be able to move and to be very mobile and um, fluid. And the bile salts really help with that process, choline and taurine and um, these are key bile salts. So 
bile also is important, again, as a sterilizing agent, kill off bad microbes. And then also for um, keeping our blood sugar stable actually hits certain receptors that have to do with blood sugar stability in the small intestine. So bile is super critical and many people are not producing and you, and basically getting the bile out of their ducts because maybe either they're not producing enough bile or they have stones. They have bile gallstones that are either in their gallbladder or in their bile ducts in their liver that are reducing the flow of bile or they're, sometimes their bile is just too thick and sludgy. So it's not moving well. And that can be for a variety of reasons. It could be from estrogen dominance and insulin resistance, which causes more cholesterol to back up in the bile and less bile salts and the bile flows uh, a lot slower and it's not as effective. So these are all key things we need to keep under, under control. Now, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which can absolutely be, be caused because of low stomach acid and poor bile flow is basically when food starts to be digested too early. So in, you know, a normal distribution of intestinal bacteria, you really don't get significant bacterial fermentation until you get into the colon. Um, you get some in the ileum, which is the latter component of the small intestine. So it goes duodenum, jejunum, and ileum, right? So duodenum is the first part of the small intestine, jejunum, and then the ileum is the last portion. The, la the jejunum, we, or I'm sorry, the ileum, we start to get some sort of breakdown um, of food components. We have more bacteria in those areas. And then, you know, we get the massive majority in the colon. Whereas when there's bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, the bacteria from the large intestine has translocated into the small intestine, particularly the ileum and the latter portion of the jejunum. And they start, those bacteria start fermenting and breaking down these food particles early, which causes excessive gas buildup. And the small intestine is really not built for that. And also it reduces nutrient absorption. So we need really key, you know, that whole jejunum ileum region is very important for absorbing a lot of key B vitamins, uh, different nutrients, different minerals. And so when we get this overgrowth, we're not able to absorb the nutrients effectively and we create massive inflammation that damages the intestinal lining as well. So we need to keep that bacteria back into the, you know, latter portion of the ileum and into the colon. That's what's so important here to get the right amount of digestion. I just wanted to take a moment and interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my new favorite products. It's the Paleo Valley Turmeric Complex. If we're gonna thrive in life, we've gotta keep inflammation under control. We know that chronic inflammation is at the root of every degenerative condition. And turmeric is the most well-studied herb for supporting a healthy inflammation response in our body. It really supports good, healthy blood flow, joint health, brain function, our ability to have a healthy mood, memory, mindset. And so when we look at what's out there on the supplement market, when it comes to turmeric, most of these supplements are using one isolated compound called curcumin. And curcumin is really, really powerful. However, what most don't really fully understand is that turmeric, whole food-based turmeric has nearly 300 other beneficial components other than just curcumin. Now, the issue with turmeric is that it has notoriously low bioavailability on its own. So it's very hard for our body to absorb. It really needs fat 
And also worming herbs really help support the absorption. You think about like a curry, for example, this famous Indian dish, they've got a lot of turmeric in there. That's why it's kind of orange colored, but it's usually in a coconut milk base and it has warming herbs like black pepper, ginger, different things like that in there, cloves. And so Paleo Valley, this is what they did with their turmeric complex. They put in coconut oil, they put in black pepper. The combination there has been shown to increase the absorption of all the different compounds in the turmeric by 2000%. So they've dramatically increased the absorption level there. And they added in organic ginger, rosemary, and cloves, which are warming herbs that really support digestion, help you fully pull out as much of the nutrient value out of the turmeric as possible. These herbs also are great for supporting healthy inflammation, the immune system. They're great for the brain. Uh, and they're also great for blood sugar stability. So they're all in the Paleo Valley turmeric complex. And guys, you can save 15% off this product by going to paleovalley.com forward slash DR jockers and using the coupon code jockers at checkout that will save you 15% off your order if you want to thrive in life you've got to keep inflammation under control paleo valley turmeric complex is really the best supplement out there for helping support a good inflammation process and allowing you to live at your best so try it out today so we can also have parasites yeast fungal overgrowth and some major warning signs that this may be happening are chronic digestive issues like constipation, diarrhea, fatigue, and weakness in general, teeth grinding, believe it or not. So oftentimes mineral deficiency or magnesium deficiency, and can also be related to uh, parasite overgrowth or different uh, state of dysbiosis, iron deficiency, anemia, unless we are menstruating and having really heavy periods, which is kind of another set of problems. Uh, or if we are like a, um, a raw vegan, that we may not be absorbing enough iron that way. We're getting enough iron. But if we're eating meat on a regular basis, we should not have iron deficiency anemia. That is a sign that we are not getting the iron to the cells, to the red blood cells. And oftentimes that's a response the body makes, not only because parasites will steal the iron, but also to protect against the parasites from stealing iron. Sometimes it will put its iron into a storage form and not actually get it out to the red blood cells. So iron deficiency anemia is important to look for uh, when it comes to bacterial, parasite, or yeast overgrowth. Skin problems. When we have inflammation in the skin, it's related to inflammation in the gut. So those go hand in hand. Abdominal pain in general related to inflammation and gas and bloating in the gut. Changes in appetite and also diverticulitis where the diverticuli become inflamed that can also cause abdominal pain. Changes in appetite. So if we're feeling nauseous, just not really able to eat a lot, that can oftentimes be a sign of some sort of parasite, yeast or bacterial overgrowth. Anxiety, so mood issues. So we know that inflammation in the gut is gonna cause inflammation in the brain, which can lead to anxiety, depression, headaches, chronic pain in the body and just poor memory, poor mental, um, mental clarity. And, and just our, our you know, our brain's not, not, does not have as good an ability to think sharply and quickly. So what are some of the main causes of low stomach acid? Well, chronic stress is a big factor. Many people are stressed when they're eating and they're, and stress is the antagonist to good digestion. When we're stressed, we're not going to be able to produce stomach acid, bile, and pancreatic enzymes the way that we should. This is why I recommend eating your largest meal 
when you're most relaxed. Eating foods that are really easy on the digestive system, like protein shakes, for example, when you are busier because you're going to be under more stress, you're not going to be able to produce as much digestive juices, as opposed to when you're relaxed, you're going to, be able to produce more digestive juices. Now, there's also an infection called H. pylori. I talked about that earlier. That can shut down the ability to produce stomach acid. Aging in general, as you age, you're going to be less and less able to produce stomach acid. Most people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they need support. They need supplemental support to produce the, digest the stomach acid they need to sterilize, break down protein, and uh, you know keep inflammation under control. You're not going to be able to absorb zinc. We absorb zinc through the stomach. And if you have low stomach acid, you're going to end up with zinc deficiencies and also food sensitivities because you're not breaking down food well. You're creating more inflammation in the gut. It's going to lead to food sensitivities. So some at-home tests that you can do to check for low stomach acid. One is a steak test. Number two is a baking soda stomach acid test. Number three is the betaine HCL test. So the steak test works like this. You eat a six ounce steak all by yourself. You notice how you feel over the next three hours. If you feel tired, if you have gas, abdominal bloating, acid reflux, nausea, or an increase in other unwanted symptoms, it's a sign you may have low stomach acid. Normally, if you eat a six ounce steak, you should feel great. You know, uh, if you produce enough stomach acid, you're gonna be able to break it down, digest it well. There's a lot of good nutrients and protein and fat in there that keep you very satiated. You should feel good. If you have these unwanted symptoms, you're not producing the stomach acid that you need. You need to address that. Now, another test is the baking soda test. Basically, you take a quarter teaspoon of baking soda in four to six ounces of cold water. You take it first thing in the morning before eating or drinking anything. And then you time how long it takes you for, to burp or belch. So baking soda has hydroxyl uh, compounds, hydroxide compounds that are basic. And so they combine with the acid in the stomach and they create carbon dioxide. And so normally that carbon dioxide will build up and you'll release it in, you know, out through your mouth through a birch or a belt. If you're not, if you don't have enough acid in your stomach, then you're not going to get the reaction. You're not going to be able to build up enough carbon dioxide. And so if you go five minutes without burping, that's a sign you're not producing enough acid. Ideally should burp or belch really within five minutes and, and really ideally within three minutes of drinking this concoction. That's a great test. Now there is also something called the betaine HCL challenge test where you basically you take some betaine HCL starting with, you know, roughly, I don't know, let's say 400, 500 milligrams and you take it with a meal and you see how your body responds. If you feel good when you consume that with your, and you should normally eat like a six ounce steak or something like that, six ounce piece of meat. When you feel good with that, like if you feel better, gets rid of your, any sort of symptoms that you may have had on the steak test, that's a sign that was the right amount. If you did not get a good response, like if you still had the bloating, the stomach, you know, the acid reflux, different issues like that, then you'd want to take two capsules, right? And you kind of find the sweet spot of it. And so I go through that in more detail um, in the PDF that goes with this video. So you can check that out. But that is a great at-home test too that you can do. Now let's talk about bioflow. So symptoms of poor bioflow, diarrhea is a common one, bad smelling or trapped gas, um, stomach cramps, weight loss, pale colored stool. Normally it's what gives the stool brown color, greasy floating stools and erratic bowel movements. So these are all signs. Now, 
best at-home test, the fat bomb test. Uh, you can also check reflexology and meridian centers that I'll show you, and then the bioflow support test. So the fat bomb test, it's kind of similar to the steak test. Now we're really testing how good are we at breaking down fat. So you eat a couple fat bombs. We have a great recipe. It's actually the one, one that's pictured, chocolate fat bombs, basically like chocolate and coconut butter and stevia to flavor it. So it's really high fat. Um, you know, mostly just fat as, as the main macronutrient. And um, it can, that can help. You know, normally you eat one or two of these, you actually should feel fine. You should feel very satiated, not hungry at all, and you should have good mental clarity. However, if you notice acid reflux, nausea, gas, bloating, diarrhea, cramping, floating, stool, or other digestive complaints, you're not producing the bile you need to really um, emulsify those fats, break them down, absorb them, and they're creating more stress and inflammation in the gut. So um, another thing that you can do, another test, is going to be look at certain emotions and also certain trigger points. So when it comes to bioflow, if you're not getting good bioflow, a lot of times you'll notice a lot of pain in your upper, under your right shoulder blade and between your shoulder blades. So if you're noticing a lot of stiffness in between your shoulder blades, particularly right under your right shoulder blade, that region could be a sign of poor bioflow. And that may be because your bile ducts in your liver and your gallbladder are being congested, that they are congested with bile, bile stones, right? And just really sluggish bile. Also between your right thumb and your forefinger, there is you know a spot right in there and the webbing there that you can press. If you're noticing a lot of soreness in there, it could indicate that you have poor bile flow your iliotibial bands, so your IT bands on the outer portion of your thigh is another indication. Cramping in your knees or your thighs, right, can also be uh, an issue. And then cramping in your fourth toe, so like your ring finger on your toes. Um, those are all related to the meridian center for the for liver, gallbladder, and bioflow. And some certain emotions that are involved with your liver and your gallbladder, frustration, anger, bottled up resentment, right? That you just haven't been able to express and indecisiveness in general. So if you're noticing you're struggling with a lot of these could be related to what's going on here with your liver or, and also, you know, it's, it's one of those things where those things can also trigger poor function of your liver and your gallbladder. So working on your mind, your emotions, and also massaging and stretching these major regions can help improve the blood flow into the liver or gallbladder and help support uh, its ability to function properly. So that's key. There's also a bioflow support test where you basically, um, you consume your fat bombs and then you take a supplement we have called bioflow support, which has bile salts in it and which are those amino acids and also herbs like dandelion uh, that's in there. And there's several others, greater Chaldean, uh, Googlesterones that help with bile flow. They help trigger bile flow. And um, that also will help because if you take that and you notice that you digest better, it's because you got the right, right amount of bile salts. You probably had sluggish cholesterol ridden bile that needed salts to help um, thin it out and help move it effectively. So the salts help thin and improve the mobility of the bile so it can flow through the ducts and do what it's supposed to do on the fat that we're consuming. So now let's shift to symptoms of poor pancreatic enzyme production. 
Gas and bloating is really common. Diarrhea or constipation, abdominal cramping, poor. Now there's a lot of overlap there, right? Cause like that could be certainly be uh, overgrowth of bacteria. It could be um, related to poor stomach acid and poor bile flow. However, big ones are poor tolerance to high fiber foods and high FODMAP foods. Okay. And that's why the at-home test, the main at-home test is the broccoli test. With the broccoli test, you prepare and eat a big bowl of steamed broccoli. Normally eat a bowl of steamed broccoli. You should feel great, right? Broccoli is a nutrient dense food. You have this bowl of broccoli. Don't, you know, I recommend when you're trying this test, just eat the broccoli um, and then see how you feel over the next three hours. If you have an increase in bloating, gas, acid reflux, or other unwanted symptoms, it may indicate you have small intestinal, could be large intestinal, but most likely, you know, the bacteria has shifted into the small intestine and you have overgrowth and you have poor pancreatic enzyme function. So again, you should feel great after the steak test. You should feel great after the fat bomb test. You should feel great after the broccoli test. If one or more of these tests is triggering symptoms, it's a sign you're not producing these digestive juices effectively. So the other test is you take digestive enzymes. So what you do here is you eat the broccoli, but you take two of these enzymes. These enzymes are designed, super designed, designed to help you break down cruciferous vegetables. If you feel a lot better, you don't have the unwanted symptoms when you take the enzymes, it's because your body's not producing enough enzymes. All right. Now, if you still notice the gas and bloating, even after taking the enzymes, it's because you have an overgrowth of bacteria, bad bacteria because the enzymes have helped you metabolize the fibers, the hard outer cellulose fibers that's helped you break those down, the FODMAP groups of fibers. However, they're still being metabolized too early in the small intestine and producing gas, and that's causing the gas and bloating um, and your inability to really tolerate that, the broccoli. So this is key, right? So you do those two tests to kind of determine if you have that bacterial imbalance. Okay. Also, you know, for, if we want to get beyond at-home testing, I'm a huge fan of really in-depth comprehensive blood analysis. Things that you want to look at are white blood cells, right? So you want to look at your whole immune system function, blood sugar and insulin levels. You want to look at all your liver and kidney markers, liver enzymes, kidney markers like uh, BUN, for example, different electrolytes. So you want that. You want inflammatory markers like high sensitivity C-reactive protein, sedimentation rate, homocysteine, um, ferritin. You want to look at all of that you want to look at all your thyroid levels, right? Thyroid antibodies, T3, T4, free T3, free T4, TSH. You want to look at your zinc copper levels. See how well you're absorbing zinc. If you have a zinc copper imbalance, you want to look at your folate and B12 levels, um, lipid panel. So your cholesterol, triglycerides, parathyroid, urinary tract health. So you want to look at, um, you know, what's happening. Do you have red blood cells? Do you have bacteria in your urine? And you also want to look at cardiovascular risk factors. Again, all your inflammatory markers, things like vitamin D, vitamin A, uh, minerals, electrolytes, red blood cells, and your iron status, all key. But this will also help clue us in to what's happening in your body. Are you dealing with gut dysbiosis and help monitor results? Now, another great test is a GI map stool analysis, which really looks at your microbiome. And it's a PCR test, so it's looking at genetic 
uh, material in your in your colon, and it's looking for the presence of all these different opportunistic bacteria. It also looks at healthy bacteria, dysbiotic overgrowth bacteria, parasites, different forms of yeast. Um, and it's looking at digestive health markers like secretory IgA, the immune component. It's looking at inflammation in the gut with a marker called calprotectin. It's looking at liver function um, and how well you are going through phase two liver detox because it looks at beta-glucuronidase. Uh, so a number of different markers in there. It looks at digestive enzyme uh, ability through a marker called alactase. How well you're breaking down fat through a marker called steatocrit. So, you know, like for example, you could see on this individual, they have a parasite, Blastocystis hominis, that was positive. They also have some potential autoimmune triggers, some pathogenic bacteria, Klebsiella pneumonia and Siderobacter fruendi. So, you know, they may want to address those if they're having unwanted symptoms. Another great test is an organic acid test, which is a urine test. On that urine test, it has specific markers for dysbiosis, bacterial overgrowth, as well as yeast and fungal overgrowth. And it also looks at a whole number of other markers as well, but specific to the gut, that's what it's looking at. Now let's talk about some strategies and solutions. So gut-friendly nutrition strategies. You know, typically a great place to begin is an elimination diet, right? So you take out things like gluten, your grains in general. You might take out uh, corn, sugar, processed foods, bad vegetable oils like uh, corn oil, soybean oil, things like that. It's really more of like a paleo diet. So we're taking out grains, we're taking out uh, typically legumes, and um, you know we're taking out processed foods and sugars. Now, if you're not seeing results after making that change, then you may want to consider a low FODMAP or even a carnivore diet where you're really taking out all the fermentable carbohydrates out of your system. So for some people, they need more prebiotics. Some people need less prebiotics. And that's really what a low FODMAP diet is. It starves down the bacteria. FODMAPs are fermentable carbohydrates that bacteria use as a fuel source. And so, you know, again, elimination diet is a great place to start in the beginning. You know, remo removing the most common uh, foods that can irritate the gut. But then a low FODMAP diet, I've seen for many people, if they don't respond to the elimination diet, we put them on a low FODMAP diet. We take out the FODMAP groups of foods, okay? And you can read more about that in the PDF that I have attached, but these are many of the FODMAP groups of foods. So broccoli is in there, cauliflower, um, you know, lots of different things, garlic, onions, right? So a lot of healthy foods. However, unfortunately, some people are just not able to metabolize those well, so they end up having more problems. So we pull out those types of foods and um, you know, we see how the person responds. For many people, they respond well. For some people, you know, here's again more FODMAP groups, you know, your legumes, right? Different things like that. Usually we're doing it for two to six weeks, okay? And then we might reintroduce one FODMAP at a time, one food at a time over a three-day period, and just kind of see how much FODMAP somebody can add back into their diet, and then we kind of personalize it. So for some people, they may respond great eating avocados and broccoli, but not when they consume onions or garlic or something like that. And so we personalize how they do their FODMAP reintroduction. So for some people, they need that low FODMAPs diet um, and customize that. Now for other people, they feel worse when they go on a low FODMAP diet. They actually need more prebiotic foods. And so prebiotic foods 
are some of the best ones are going to be things like broccoli and chicory root and Jerusalem artichoke and onions and leek and garlic and carrots and dandelion. And um, uh, let's see, you also have things like uh, cauliflower, right? Asparagus. These are all great foods, these vegetables, great foods. And for some people, they do really well with that. For some people, again, they don't, they need to take those out. So you got to figure out what's best, what works for you. For some people with severe gut issues, we really need more of a liquid diet. We need to do what's called an elemental or semi-elemental diet. And that can be really powerful for people, right? And it's just, um, you know, doing protein shakes oftentimes and bone broth and things like that for a period of time. So you're still getting nutrients in, but you're you're significantly reducing the amount of fiber and prebiotics and putting food in a form where it's pre-digested. So it's very minimal work on the digestive tract to be able to break it down and metabolize it. Now, other good things, you know, we want to stimulate vagal tone. Vagus nerve is our, it's Latin for wanderer, travels down from the brainstem into our heart, our lungs, and into our digestive system. It's really key. It's bi-directional. So the gut is constantly sending feedback to the brain and the brain sending feedback to the gut, for example. And this is why one of the ways that um, gut issues can lead to anxiety and depression by affecting vagal nerve activity. So we need good vagal nerve stimulation in order to produce our digestive juices. So the way that we can help improve our vagal tone, one way is actually just kind of massaging behind our ear, like right under our jaw, behind our ear. That's kind of where the vagus nerve comes. And you can use essential oils, right? So um, you can use things like clove and lime essential oil and rub back there, and that can help. You can also do things like, for example, gargling, actually, believe it or not, helps activate the vagus nerve. Uh, singing, so you can like sing in the shower in your car, actually helps to activate that vagus nerve so you can get better secretions of digestive juices. Deep breathing, so breathing and meditation can be really helpful here, right? So just taking some deep breaths before a meal is really a very important time to get vagal nerve stimulation. So taking a few deep breaths, being in a state of gratitude, saying a prayer uh, can be a really powerful way to help stimulate digestive juices. So you want to do things to help support healthy vagal nerve tone. Um, and then we really want to prioritize good bowel movements. We should be moving our bowels one to four times a day. We want to move out all the waste from previous meals within 24 hours. And the best rhythm is early in the morning, typically, or right after a meal. So your large intestine is typically most active between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. So we really want to be moving out waste during that period of time. So at least one to two good bowel movements in the morning. And then you also may notice it after meals because when you eat, eating stimulates a process called peristalsis, which is muscular contractions of the gut. And that peristaltic activity will help move things through your gut as well. So we want to really be moving things out. When things sit stagnate and stagnate in our gut, they create a massive amount of endotoxins that drive up inflammation, damage the gut lining, and create an overgrowth of bad, unwanted, pathogenic bacteria, parasites, right? Basically a state of dysbiosis. So good bowel movement is super critical. Now, one thing that I've also seen, especially people that are dealing with dysbiosis and a lot of bloating, constipation, is the ileocecal valve massage, okay? And, um, you know, the, I, I have a link, you know, again, you can follow the link uh, and the PDF for, um, the PDF that goes with this. So that way you can 
find out more about how to do the ileocecal valve, but it's basically between your stomach and your right hip bone. And you're going to do a circular motion. And so you want to help open up that ileocecal valve. For some people, they have scar tissue in there. It's kind of blocking it up, or it's just been, um, it's, it's twisted a little bit and blocked or foodstuffs are blocking it. And you want to get that moving because that's going to help keep bacteria that should be in a large intestine in the large intestine. This is the area where the, the bacteria will seep from your large intestine into your small intestine. Basically, your ileocecal valve separates your large and small intestine. And so you want to keep that, you want to keep food moving in the proper direction through that and keep the bacteria in the large intestine as much as possible. And that can be really helpful. A lot of people have said that's been life-changing for them doing this self-massage on the ileocecal valve. And then finally, probiotics. Okay, probiotics can be really helpful. And so usually we'll start with diet, right? And make some of these diet changes, ileocecal valve, vagal nerve stimulation, but then adding in some appropriate amount of probiotics can be really helpful. For some people, they do great with a food-based probiotic, lactobacillus bifidobacterium. For other people, they need a, a spore-forming probiotic like your bacillus strains. And then yet other people need something like Saccharomyces boulardii or a beneficial yeast. And then yet other people need a combination, like a combination of these. And so on my online store, we actually have all different types. And going through a probiotic trial, trying each one of these for you know a short period of time can actually be very, very helpful, very effective for understanding how your body's responding to probiotics. And some people may respond really well to one type and not what not as well to another type. So finding the right probiotic can do can really be um, again life changing when it comes to really conditioning your gut and keeping it healthy over a course of a, a long period of time. Probiotics are well studied with a lot of really good effects, but you know you may have more sensitivity to one bacteria than the other. So finding the right type of probiotic for you is key and critical. So anyways, guys, I will see you guys on a future training. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on, or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.